On this episode of Building Men, we serve by loving, teaching, and protecting. The conversation with the alpha hippie, Angelo Sisko. Angelo is an international speaker, guide, and head coach at Alpha Hippie. Angelo has dedicated himself to empowering men who are overwhelmed and are stuck in a cycle of stress and burnout. He's helped thousands of men reconnect to their mission, rebuild their lifestyle so they can enjoy their lives and get back to crushing it both personally and professionally. I think you're going to absolutely love this interview with the Alpha Hippie, Angelo Sisko. Welcome to the Building Men Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Meralda. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Building Men Podcast. My name is Dennis Meralda. The Building Men Podcast, we're geared toward helping you become the strongest version of yourself mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Before I started recording, I was just bullshitting with my guest here. His name is Angelo Sisko. Uh, Angelo is a unbelievable human being. I cannot wait to get to know him a little bit more over the next hour or so of my life. We were just joking around before we got on, and I'm sure we'll let the audience in on that little secret that we have. So before we get started, Angelo, I wanted to give you an opportunity to just, you know, let us know a little bit about where the alpha hippie idea came from. It's such a dichotomy, that idea of an alpha and a hippie, that masculine feminine energy. So I'm just curious about where you got that idea from. Yeah, absolutely. And and first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it, Kim. Uh, so in uh, 2014, I became curious, uh, should I say, about the idea of personal, like an intentional personal growth, self-discovery or actualization journey and path. And I started reading, and then I I eventually moved into coming to Southern California, not far from where I live now, and doing retreats and and growing and all that stuff. And most of my life, I grew out I grew up just outside of Chicago. My idea or model of a man was a Alpha Gordon Gecko aggressive style street wise man and i came out here to california and it's a different experience shall we say at least where i was going for these retreats these men were walking around barefoot hugging each other being kind and warm and i'll be really open at first it freaked me out i was really you know dumbfounded at first by all this and then as soon as my nervous system began to calm down and and actually be able to embrace it and not just judge it i was really happy with uh you know how it felt to to connect to my heart and my feelings uh, for the first time as far as i could really remember you know, uh, you know, for for most of my upbringing, what I really recall is a removal of innocence and or feelings, and that was a big part of what I really felt and was modeled as a man is to not access nor entertain that part of me, and uh, it felt really good. It felt freeing uh, in many. Uh, 
aspects of my life to embrace that loving side of me. And then I also do like a part of me that is an alpha, that knows how to take action, that trusts himself, that knows he's going to show up. Because oftentimes I see on the hippie side of things a lot of talk and no action. And so I am not a advocate of just being a hippie, nor am I an advocate of being just pure alpha and doing things. It's really a harmonization of both, is can I do things and take action and live a life of integrity while being in touch with my feelings and aligned with my heart? And that's really what an alpha hippie uh, resembles. During the last year, Angelo, I went on this kind of self-discovery journey trying to figure out what masculinity means to me. I, I started the build, Building Men is an offshoot of a program that I ran as a principal to try to reach middle school kids. I was a middle school principal for many years and I identified that's where we start to question our own place in the world, what masculinity means. And so when I started this podcast, I went on this journey trying to figure out one, what did masculinity mean to me? And what's the best way to communicate what masculinity means to my son, who's 16 years old right now? And you have a son as well, right? You, yes. And he's, he's a little boy. What's he, a year and a half, something like that? Yeah, he'll be two in September. That's awesome. And so as I'm going through this journey trying to discover what masculinity means, I, I talk to people about it. I ask guests, what is your definition of masculinity? In the dictionary, masculinity is, is traits associated with being male. And what the fuck does that even mean? Yes. So your definition and, and the, the alpha hippie idea resonates with me because so far, the closest thing that I can come to a definition is this harmonious balance in life. There's a balance between being vulnerable and being stoic and strong. There's a balance between you know, being outgoing but also being reserved and being able to sit back and understand and take you know, take stock of a situation. So kind of the middle of a seesaw almost is, is where I, I am right now. But there's all these words, these buzzwords that I would, you know, that I would use to describe masculinity. So as you're thinking about masculinity and, and how you would want to tell your son about it, what would be a couple characteristics that you might say to your son? This is what being a man really means. Great. The main purpose of a man is to serve to live a life of service. You serve by loving, by teaching, and protecting. And so if you are not able to do any of those for yourself, you will not be able to do them for others. So if you do not love yourself, if you are not able to be your own mommy and daddy, your own teacher or guide, you cannot really do it for others. And if you are not able to protect or provide for yourself, that is physically, financially, in all the ways that you are imagining, you will not be able to give it and share it as, as well. And so that is how I really look at a man, what our purpose is, and then how that of service and then what does service comprise of is those three things and then at first how do we get them by giving them learning them and giving them to ourselves and therefore it trickles down to others 
because we teach by modeling. And so it's first needs to be in us because then we can model it to others. So it's not what you say, it's what you do. It's what people are seeing. It's that action that you're taking that sets the example for others to follow. Yeah, the greatest lie my father ever told me was do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> really, right, so, and I love the man, but that's a fucking, um, excuse me, that's bullshit. And free reign to say any word you want to say. It's I'll, I'll mark it as explicit as I always do. So, you know, you have be be authentically the, the version of you that came from, from Chicago that I'm sure used very colorful words growing up. So you talked about your father, and I want to do a little bit of a dive there. I listened to you on the Brain Dump podcast with my, my buddy Austin Lenny, who introduced us to each other. And during that, that podcast, you talked about your experience growing up and your father. You know that he loved you. He had so much love in his heart for you and how he – the example that he set for you and things that he did, decisions that he made and – also, there was a specific moment that you talked about, and I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing about how your your father you were you were kind of challenged with bully, a bullying situation, how your father um, responded, and, and what that taught you about life from that moment. Yes, and so first, shout out to Austin and the crew over there. Mad love to you guys. And uh, so, my father, little background: my father grew up very overweight. And he was picked on his whole life for being overweight. He came from a family where his father barely spoke to him. He worked two jobs. His mother was very hard on him, beat him, as well as sent him to work at 14 with a Ford's work permit and kept his money. So my father did not have much support and guidance in his life. And one day, Someone was picking on him for being overweight. My father is also a big man. I mean, I'm a, a relatively larger stature man, but he's also taller than me and, and big and thick. And one day he used violence as a way to silence his bully. And then he found out that that actually worked. And no longer... Did he have to take anyone's shit anymore? He could just beat them up. and Or at least give it a shot. And he saw that that was his tool to experience freedom. That that was his superpower. No different than Forrest Gump looking down in his legs and figuring out that running was his. And, and so my father saw me in a bully-like situation, and what else would he want, believe was best to teach me, was his superpower. And so he saw me being bullied and saw that I took no action like he did at one time. And he had me fight those kids. And I was five because, or four or five at the time, my father went to prison in August of 1989. I was five years old, so this happened all prior to that. And so I was a very young age. And uh, after I beat those kids up, my dad was very proud of me. So I felt very proud of me. 
And therefore, I lived the majority of my life believing that when a bully comes up to you, you beat him up and you don't stop until it's done. And so Forrest ran and I don't stop until it's done. Last man standing. So my story takes a similar path, except there was a, a divergence when, you know, when it came to the violence part of it. So mine was, I was in sixth grade and I was, uh, I was always a good athlete, Angelo. And I was, I made the baseball, the baseball team in middle school. And there were a couple eighth graders who I was really friendly with. We used to hang out around town and play basketball and baseball, football. They were, you know, kids that I would hang with and I made the team and they didn't. And they took that anger and aggression on not making the team out on me who made the team as a younger student. And they started picking on me. So as a sixth grade kid, middle school is always a challenging experience. You know, most people try to just get through middle school as quick as they can, you know, just to get out of that experience. And I remember I was getting picked on. I was getting, you know, it was just name calling at first. And then it became more physical in nature where you know, they'd be pushing me and throwing things at me. And then it came to, you know, the, the point where I would get off the bus and I would have to race home as quick as I can because they were chasing me down and throwing things at me. And sometimes I made it and sometimes I didn't. And I would get home and there would be, I would have bumps and bruises, bloody nose, black eye, I got my ass kicked a couple times. And I still remember to this day, and it's emotional to even think about. I went through that same experience that you did where I was driving somewhere with my father and these kids were up at the top of the street, three eighth grade kids, they're yelling, fuck you, as loud as they could as we're driving by. My father parks his van, he goes, I want you to go kick, go kick that kid's ass, go kick his ass right now. And I, I was afraid. I didn't, I didn't move. He goes up and he talks to the kid. He comes back. Then he goes, I arranged for a fight. You go fight him right now. And I did still didn't move. I was, I was frozen and I started to cry and he left the room. Didn't talk to me. And there was this level of guilt and shame that I felt that I didn't go and like stick up for my father or like whatever the case may be. And he didn't talk to me for like a month. I was in it. I was in the shithouse because I didn't go and fight this kid. And it was one of those moments where at the time I, I was like, what's wrong with me? I'm such a pussy. I didn't go fight. Looking back, there were so many times in my life that I was like, I can't believe that I, I changed my personality for such a long time because I was afraid that if I did something wrong, that people wouldn't like me and that I would, I would be bullied and I was placed in this corner and that I didn't have the love of my old man. So my, when, when you told that story, it, it hit home with me. And I was thinking, man, if I would have went and fought that kid that day, what would have life been like for me from that point? Because it was a, a big moment. But what it did as I look back was one of the reasons that I got into education and wanted to be a principal because I didn't want anyone to ever go through a similar experience. I didn't want anyone to ever think that they didn't have someone to go to. So um, as you told that story, it really it hit home with me. And so you took it in a way like I'm going to go. I'm going to be my, my, my daddy's son and I'm going to go and, and fight this guy. But you were probably, your, your validation came from being physically aggressive. So that probably put you on this trajectory in your life where you were, it was probably like ready, fire, aim. I'll throw a punch first and ask questions next. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to speak nor push. That was the part of the deal is if someone called me fat thereafter, I, as long as I didn't try to argue with them or as long as I didn't push them, the game was just walk up no matter where you were, no matter what time, if you were in school, not school, 
everything would be excused at home. Didn't matter if you were suspended. I would never be grounded for this. I would actually be praised. And so I grew up every year. The I think only K through or first grade through eighth grade. I believe I was only I wasn't suspended two or three years. The rest of the time I was I got at least one suspension because if someone made a joke, even a teacher, I would do some violent act to them without speaking a word because then they didn't really see it coming either. But yeah, how did the school react? To it? I'm just thinking. They didn't know. They didn't know the agreements at home. We kept those to ourselves. You know, I joke with people all the time. Outside my house, we tried to be the Kennedys. Inside my house, we were the Connors, like Roseanne's family. We were allowed to be crazy. Got it. You know, but outside, when we left the house, I was little John John Kennedy. So, in your experience <laughs> in school, you would I you would have been in my office a lot. We would have been good buddies. You and I would have known each other really well. Uh, we would have had a lot of conversations about anger and aggression. And so your experience in school, I'm just wondering, I'm, I'm on this deep dive now, Angela, trying to figure out my views on education and how how I feel education, what it does to serve kids in the future. And then actually things that, that our education system is doing currently that's detracting from kids growing up and really being the best that they can be, because I feel like I personally feel like kids are put into a box in education right now. Do mm-hmm. you feel like your experience in education prepared you to do what you're doing right now? Or did you learn kind of from the school of hard knocks and just from life experiences to get where you are right now? Mm. What a tremendous question. I'll be really transparent. I got straight A's. And though, I was a the only time the only time I got bad markings was for behavior. And you know, my father was in prison for eleven years and so they gave me a little bit of grace. They understood my home life was not a you know, a regular declar guided home life. And at the same time, though, too, I would get exceptional grades. There was years I would go two classes above me for for math and English. I was very, I was a really great student and I was very, I would do the regular work for whatever grade I was in. And then I would go attend the other rooms for, those subjects as well. So I would do double the work. That's really what my parents prescribed to the school is my son is just bored. Give him more work. He's not busy enough. And that's why he's a problem. He's a behavioral problem. And so uh, they would give me that work plus the other work. And then in between there, that was my time. Were you motivated by the actual grades? Were you motivated by getting straight A's or were you motivated by the journey of learning and the experiential nature of the actual information that you were learning? What a great question. I really do love to learn. I'm a truth seeker through and through. And uh, also too, I'm a showman. 
I loved being the bad kid that got straight A's. Like, I loved being bipolar. I guess you could say that. Like, I loved being a paradox. Like, I loved the guy, like, that was the problem kid that everyone thinks is, like, the dumb kid. But then, meanwhile, I still got straight A's. And so it it gave me a a fun chip on my shoulder at the same time. I got, I got kicks off of it. I still do. It's interesting too. So you went through this experience in school and your father was incarcerated. Yes. So first question would be, did you still, did you still have a relationship with your father as you were going through school? Did you see him on a regular basis? Great question. So every Tuesday at four 30, my father would call collect every Sunday. We wrote letters and depending on where he was in the country, my father was in federal prison. Depending on where he was in the country, we would see him once or twice a year for visits. So did you develop your idea around masculinity solely from your father, or did you have other influences in your life, male influences in your life that helped you understand what masculinity meant to you at that time? Well, what a tremendous question. I'm four in a row here. Wow, I'm on a roll. This is a really good question. (laughs) I was very great, uh, very um, fortunate that I had a series of wonderful mentors that I really latched on. And so um, I uh, I had an uncle, my mother's brother, that really showed me how to be a fun, thoughtful man. And also, too, he, there was moments where he was hard on me, uh, and that was also very serving. He really showed me how to anticipate things and really pay attention. I began working uh, for a man at the age of 12 who really took a big liking to me because his father was in prison when he was young. He didn't know this when he hired me, let alone, but he did. And his name was Danny. And what he taught me to do was take pride in my work. And then he had a son named Sam who taught me how to have charisma and swagger. I call those men all my angels. My dad taught me how to have tenacity, last man standing and and doing all that. My uncle... Uh, who we joked, he had a nickname, Beaver. He taught me how to be joyful and fun and create fun games and then also anticipate when it was time for me to show up. Danny taught me how to find God in all I do. And Sam taught me how to be cool. It's so interesting how we puzzle. It's these puzzle pieces that we have to put together to develop, develop our own sense of what being a man means. So those, these people that you had in your life, they had to find a way to communicate it to you in a way that resonated with you. And I think as, as teachers, as coaches, as educators, one of our jobs are to understand how do we need to show up and communicate our message in a way that will be received by the person we're trying to communicate with. One thing that I love about you and your journey is the way that you communicate about communication. Yes. It's something that hits home with me in that I believe so many conflicts in life can be avoided if we're cognizant about the way that we're communicating. And what I mean by that is 
most of communication is outside of the words that we're speaking. It's only a very small percentage of communication or the actual words that we're speaking. It's how we say what we say. That's the power of verbal communication, the tone, the volume, and the cadence of, of our words. And then the nonverbals is what we're doing when we're saying what we're saying, or you know, our facial expressions, our body language, things like that. You speak about, and the way that you communicate, I just think paraverbally, the way that you say that your words, it's, it's such an engaging way to communicate that you draw people in. As you talk, I, I just, I'm leaning more towards the conversation. And I understand it's, it's intentional in a way, but also the, the way that you're saying what you're saying makes me want to listen to whatever message it is that you're putting out there. So my, what I was interested in is you talk about a couple of these words that you believe are just bad words and it's not fucking shit and cock and you know, whatever it's like, um, hope, try those words you feel are they're they're bad words in in your language it's not the 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 curse words it's those words so tell us a little bit about why those are bad words to you great wonderful uh and thank you for seeing me and appreciating uh because this took quite a bit of time to develop communication because amazing communication is a joint venture first you must develop yourself to be aware enough to speak slow enough to understand your thoughts, understand then your words. And oftentimes people are in an ultra reactive sympathetic state and have no idea of both. And so there is a self-regulating component of that. And then there is communication as a skill. And there are certain words like hope and and things like that that show a certain amount of passivity or victim mindset or mentality and so there's four basic ways to speak you could speak passively you could speak passive aggressively you could speak aggressively and then you could speak direct and direct is when you come correct. Passive is I hope, I try. Passive aggressive is that insulter that you just want to wake up and punch across the face. Right? That underlying sort of tone that I imagine all of us get annoyed with from time to time. And then there's just aggressive, which could be mean or bullying. And then there's direct which is clear, concise, no fat, just enough to make your point, but not so much that it overindulges you, enough to show that you know what you mean, but nothing more than that. And I have studied uh, direct speech, words, body language, communication style and things of that nature and have practiced them for, for quite a while at this point. Have there been any teachers or mentors that you can recall that have helped Ooh, you along on that? Journey? Yes. Stop you right there. I'll cut that shit off. I have a word Buddha. 
My wordsmith Buddha is named Mark England. He won. He runs an incredible program called Enlifted. I have met and been friends and have worked with Mark um, at least five years at this point, almost six years, where he really helped me uncover this world that I have been quite fascinated by for a very long time. I've always had a, I don't know the proper word, fascination with, if I say I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna do it. And making sure that my words were spells to create action and then if it's if my words are spells to create or describe the action I will take, why would I ever want to hope or try to do anything? Absolutely. What I tried to do there was leave a little silence in between. Tried to yeah. let a little silence hang out there. And here's the thing. I think people are uncomfortable when they're silenced. Your message resonates with me in such a way. I went back and I listened to some of the first podcast episodes that I did, and it seemed like I snorted cocaine and downed a pot of coffee before I went on there. I was so interested in getting out information that I don't even know what I was saying half the time. And I wasn't hearing myself talk. I wasn't listening to the words. I wasn't letting it kind of fully wash over me and go through that experience of the verbal part of language. The other thing is communication, it's kind of a four-way street when there are two people talking. So I have a thought in my head that I'm trying to communicate. The way it gets from my head out of my mouth, there's two different avenues. So from here to here, there's two different things that happen. And the way that you hear it and the way that it interacts with your brain and your scheme and everything that's going. So there's four different ways that a, that a message can get interrupted. That's just the words. That's not even how you're saying what you're saying. And if I'm looking very aggressive or I'm, you know, standing above and waving my finger, that's communicating something totally different as well. So when you're working with people, how do you help them understand their own, I don't want to say shortcomings with their communication style, but how do you get people to really see what it looks like communicating with them. Great. In order for anyone to grow in anything, anything, any area of their life, the first step is awareness. In order to do awareness, you first must become a witness. So what would be the easiest way for anyone to witness their words? write them down and reread them. So I encourage people to journal or just type out a text message, take one breath and say it out loud before you send it. And so the written form of communication is the best place to start because more than likely you could hit backspace. Don't start by speaking because there is no backspace in the speaking game. Right? Right. 
And that for me is how I really like to do it. I'm from a, a CrossFit physical background. A lot of the work I do or have done is about assessment. When you want to teach someone how to breathe, you lay them on the ground first. Then you see how they could breathe lying down. And then you see how they breathe standing up. And lying down is the same thing as writing it down. It's the simplest form. So just journal before you send an email, look at it. Before you send a text message, read it. Just proofread your own stuff. And more often times or not, that wakes people up to awareness. And then we actually have a chance to upgrade that. Yet without that, they don't even know why they need to upgrade what they should upgrade. And most people, that's the, the real challenge is just getting to some form of awareness. So you've made the connection between journaling and getting your thoughts out and the kind of first step as you're working with people in a more physical fitness type way with the idea of breathing. And I've noticed just being cognizant of breathing is something most people don't do, like taking deep breaths and breathing with your belly rather than breathing with your chest when you could actually get a full breath in and being cognizant of that. It's that's a journey that I've gone over the last year, just understanding how I'm breathing. It's such a simple thing, but it's it's really profound when you think about it. You mentioned you started this CrossFit um, uh, gym when you were in Chicago. So talk to us a little bit about how that came about to where when you when you left when you graduated from high school, you know, take us on a journey from that point when you graduated high school up until opening that first CrossFit gym in Chicago. Oh, what a beautiful walk down memory lane. Here we go. When I was 20 years old, I was involved in a motorcycle accident. I was hit by a landscaping truck. I spent two months in the hospital and rehab for five months. I have 10 screws and a plate and a bunch of new skin uh, in my ankle and as well as some patched up holes in my lower calf, uh, my calf area. And I gained a lot of weight from there. I always had some weight challenges, yet at that point in my life, I, I blossomed up uh, to around 300 pounds into my mid, early to mid-20s. And uh, I found uh, CrossFit through the movie 300. So I saw the movie 300 in 2008. I saw those guys and I was enamored by them. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a truth seeker. So I started doing research. They trained at a gym called Jim Jones. Did some more research on Jim Jones. Came to find out that they were once part of this thing, CrossFit. And got into studying and researching CrossFit. January 5th, 2009, I was 300 pounds. I did my first CrossFit workout by myself. I lost 100 pounds, nearly 100 pounds, about 95 pounds in seven months. I started training people outside for free. I had another business at the time. I just thought, hey, this is absolutely amazing. I want to share this with people. After that first month, I was like, well, why can't this just be my life? This is so much fun. This doesn't feel like work at all. And uh, September of 2009, I rented a racquetball court space uh, and converted that into a one-on-one -on -one to three-on-one training area. 
to to train people in uh, a form of functional fitness. November 11, 2010, I opened up O'Hare CrossFit. And then I had a beautiful decade teaching CrossFit, opening up CrossFit affiliates, consulting, and I had a couple different gyms. I traveled as far as Africa to teach CrossFit. Uh, I had coached athletes in the CrossFit Games and uh, did all the, the fitness and all that sort of realm. I, I really checked all the boxes there in my 2010 decade. What was your favorite CrossFit workout? I know they have female names, most of them the workout sure. today, the wads. Great what was your favorite if you had to pick one out? There was a workout that I watched in 2008, even before I started CrossFit. It was called King Kong. It was the workout that really sold me on CrossFit. There was a guy at the time, his name was Josh Everett. He is He was Rich Froning. And uh, now there's Matt Frazier, or was Matt Frazier. I, I, I believe he's retired now. And then there was Rich Froning, who was like the badass. Yeah. Before either of those guys, if anyone knew, knew across it, there was Josh Everett. Josh Everett was the first sort of real true crossfitter. And what I mean by that is he did this workout called King Kong. And King Kong was three rounds for time. One deadlift at 455, two muscle-ups, three squat cleans at 250, and four handstand push-ups. And he destroyed this time that someone from Canada who was not a part of CrossFit challenged him. And it was like on a lunch break at a CrossFit level one. And the reason that I was so enamored by that workout in particular was is those weights, even today, were heavy, right? Like, to do yeah, those yeah. inside of a one-rep max situation is already tough, let alone inside of a Metcon. And then a muscle-up and a handstand push-up in 2008 were mind-blowing bodyweight movements. And so I watched this man do this workout and just laugh when he was done. It blew me away. And I said, that's how I wish to express my body. That's who I really want to be. And so that for me uh, was the workout that maybe I didn't perform the best later in my cross the years, of course, but that was the workout that really made me a believer and a full, you know, wanted to be down that path because watching Josh ever do that workout for me was, that was what I was really looking for, you know, to express myself with. I was going to ask a different question, but as you just said, those words, express yourself, it led me down a different path. I interviewed a man who, his name is Ian DeMello and he's from Perth, Australia and he does his Instagram is Catalyst Creator. He does, uh, he's involved in a men's movement, but he does dance moves and it's like called Crump. And it's this like guttural, like chanting, dancing kind of thing. And he's coaching men to find ways to fully express themselves through movement. And it's something that I think as men, a lot of men are afraid to really kind of let loose and, and have that tribal guttural, 
expression of masculinity. So as you're talking about that, to me, it hit home because it seems like that was your way to fully express that, like, you know, pent up, like, you know, true masculinity inside of you was like, I'm going to fucking go throw around some heavy weights and scream and yell. And it was it was probably very cathartic for you to, to experience that. Absolutely. And uh, may I share something more on this? Oh, absolutely. It has very little to do with masculinity and more to do with us being animals. If uh, many people research animals, they have, the majority of animals have some sort of physical play that may look like fighting, rustling. You ever see two dogs? Oh, yeah. You think they're hating each other? No, they're just playing. Lions do that, right? My son and I, you know, I lay around with him in the grass and I push him and he wants to jump on me. This type of physical expression is inside all of us. And it's, it's, a, it's an embodiment of healthy masculine energy to express yourself in that way. And I mean that also too in women, like women access this and they usually have some form of dance or anything like that, that they use, but physical expressing is a very big paramount part of us. And oftentimes when uh, boys sit too long in school and aren't allowed to move around, that's when they're technically bad or don't follow the rules if you just gave them five minutes to just roll around and get a little nuts right like that's why we all couldn't wait for recess we just really wanted a moment where we just got to go be free and move it is a it's the party trick of being a human being. Like we love to move. Like my son, when he took those first steps, he found freedom in moving. And he looked up and he realized that at that moment, he was able to express himself physically in a way that at one point he didn't. And then when he saw us cheer him on, like everyone does after those first few steps, it is reinforced that physical freedom, which is found through physical movement or play, is actually quite healthy, and we all deep down embrace it inside of our DNA. It's a part of us. Yeah, that animalistic thing, you know, I definitely see that with the dogs. I also see my dog, the way that he expresses himself is by sniffing another dog's ass, but I'm not sure if that's how we want to shake hands in the future. I don't know if we're going to go down that road or not, but it's it's interesting about the animalistic thing with with people. And I, I wanted to I appreciate you, you saying that because I want to correct. It's not just men. It's 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 a human thing. It's, it's what we all have in common is that idea. You mentioned schools and having recess. I mean, one of the things I'm so interested in is what we're doing well in education, what we need to do to improve upon that process, that experience. So in, in the Angelo Cisco Alpha Hippie school for whoever, how, what would it look like? How would you how would you structure like the perfect learning environment for, say, middle school, high school kids? What would that look like? What a tremendous question. 
because I've thought more and more about this now, especially as we are in a redesigning of a lot of systems in our culture, yet education is definitely one that's been thrown on its ass and ready for one. I really believe in a very basic language, logic, mathematics, and science foundation. I believe in a more artistic creativity. Uh, I would like to see kids being able to be in art without being graded. Oftentimes when I speak with men about why they don't are not able to touch and get in touch with their feelings or inner artist creator is because our creations were often judged, graded. Who's anyone to say if my drawing is ugly? Who's right? I'm a bad drawer. Absolutely. Whoever, who should have the power to tell someone else that their artistic expression is good, bad, or ugly should be stabbed in the eye with a pen. Because that's what really stunts boys from staying in touch with their feelings. It's those people. And believe me, I've taught enough men and walked them into their feelings to know that that is a very common part of our education system. There, uh, There's a form of play. There's a form of artistic expression that could be anything that helps someone access a, a mode of creativity that they enjoy. You could cook. You could draw. You could paint. You could be a musician. You could be a gardener. Whatever will anchor you into some form of creation is very important and often overlooked because you can't just say it's, if you really make it good, you can't just give it a grade. And because of that sort of chaos and disorder, I really imagine that's why schools can't handle it well because there's too much leeway in it to justify when it comes to sending money or getting grades to the state saying that I'm the best Art school is like saying that you're the best at something that is intangible and that doesn't work well for logical people that want results and test scores so they could get more funding. That hits home with me on such a deep level. It's one of the reasons why I'm not a school principal anymore is because of that reason. We, I think it became so much about a number. Well, one, the student ID number became more than the student themselves, what their yes. what their test score was, how much adequate yearly progress they would show on a standardized test. That That's what it was more about. And I think it needs to be about the journey. I need I believe it needs to be about that experiential component of schools where there's some type of an emotion attached to what the kids are learning as well. That's when learning really sticks. If you recount experiences in your life, there's always an emotion attached to those really great experiences or really challenging experiences. There's going to be an emotion attached. So that um, I believe, I, I think you're on the right path there and trying to find ways to, you know, it's less about the number on the piece of paper than it is about the journey inward first. And that's kind of brings it back to what we talked about in the beginning was you need to start inside, you know, if you're going to make long lasting change. When we first met Angela, we did a quick Zoom meeting 
And one thing stuck out with me, I wrote it down. You used the word renaissance and you said we are on the on the precipice of a of a renaissance in, in the world right now. And I was yes. wondering if you could just talk to us a little bit about what what does that mean to you when you when you think about that? I'm a great studier of history. And I firmly believe uh, in the late 1400s, there was the Italian Renaissance. We are on the precipice of what will be later referred to as the mindful Renaissance. This will be the time where we finally became mindful as humans and did not rely or allow a misuse of technology and a government to stop us from being aligned to who we really are as human beings and our connection to each other, ourselves and each other, which I deem as being mindful to a greater source that we are all one as human beings. And so I really believe that in 100 years from now, this time that we are looking at, we'll look back at and just like there was a dark age, there will be a, and then an Italian Renaissance came where people still go to the Sistine Chapel, maybe not now, but you look at Michelangelo's work and we're obsessed. We still, we're still fascinated by Leonardo da Vinci. This is 500 years later. And just like that, this stage of liberation, which will be an internal liberation, an internal wake up. That's why it's a mindful wake up a revolution is where we are right now as people. And so we won't look back and it's not going to be something tangible such as the Sistine Chapel or the Mona Lisa. It's going to be conversations that people are having that will help people that they're working with or that they're trying to inspire, do that work inside and understand that the key that the key to everything, the key to the universe, the key to unlocking our true potential, it sits inside of us, all of us. And that's what we're trying to do is help people understand that they have all of that inside of them already. Absolutely. Like really take a look at this last year, economics, money, right? Education, Healthcare are probably three of the biggest silos that have been flipped over. And in order to redesign them, we need to have more mindful practices, right? You know, this was the, whether who you voted for or not, this was the biggest turnout for voting. So people are finally mindful of politics. People are really realizing now, okay, we the Zooming all day for kids sucks, and yet going back to the other version sucks too, right? Hospitals and the way people even look at sickness has been based on a reactive symptom only uh, prescription and overuse and misuse of pharmaceuticals, right? So 
what do we need? We need more proactivity, a more mindful activity or approach to how we take care of our bodies, how we educate ourselves, and who is actually in charge of diplomacy and politics. What else could be more mindful than those things? Absolutely. And it's helping people understand that they're when they're looking at a situation, a problem, a scenario, it doesn't, I think back, Angelo, to those, remember those pictures that if you looked at it one way, it was a duck and the other way it was a rabbit. And then one way it was a beautiful woman and the other way it was an old woman. And yes, yes. I think that's what's happening right now too. I think what people had to do during the last year was take a different look at things. So they're, they're looking at something in one direction. They had to shift their perspective a little bit and helped us see things in a different way, almost like the emperor's new clothes or the, you started to say, huh, this is what I was told for such a long time. It doesn't necessarily mean that this is in existence right now. It, it, so it, it helped people look at things in a more critical way and understand their own opinions on things. I mentioned from the start, my journey in trying to figure out what masculinity meant to me. The last year forced me to do that. And I'm so thankful. And I think people, they went one or the other way during the last year. If people, you know, we're, we're, we're blaming other scenario situations that were outside of their control and took a, a, an approach where they just kind of coasted along or maybe even went into a shell where other people were like, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to, you know, understand myself on a deeper level and maybe reach my hand out and help other people. And I think that that was, for me, that was one of the most rewarding things. I learned more about myself during the, the course of the last year than I knew existed in the, in the previous 43. Agreed. You know, it was called 2020 because it was clear vision. And either you accepted that vision and took responsibility for that vision or you rejected it. So having said that, what's one thing that you learned about yourself in the last year that maybe you didn't know before? That life, since my conception has all and every event was happening for me so that I could be prepared to be who I am right now. That's beautiful. Yes. Thank you. You mentioned Forrest Gump before Angela, and it, it, it's been, um, it's one of, I mean, one of the greatest movies of all time, in my opinion. And I wrote down Forrest Gump as you were talking, and I didn't think I was going to go in this direction, but I decided to is in the movie, Forrest Gump is sitting on the on the bench talking to the woman with the box of chocolates, right? It's that's mm -hmm. you know, it's a main part in the movie and, and the movie goes in different directions. But there's the feather in the movie that's very it, it represents it, it's a symbolic thing in the movie and and I like to think about it. Are we is our lives kind of predetermined? Are we just kind of this feather floating along? Or do we have an opportunity to, to move, to, to be the wind that pushes the feather in another direction? Is, is our life already predetermined from, from right now until the end of time? It's already scripted out for us? Or do we have an opportunity to, to change the trajectory of where that feather floats in the world? What an amazing question. I look at that feather as what I say is the goal of life 
is to be able to surrender to it. And surrendering is not giving up. It is the ultimate form of courage. Take me on this journey. I trust myself. I accept whatever the reality is. And I know that it's all happening for me and not to me. So I trust in life and I trust in the unfolding. And that, to me, is how you create heaven on earth. Is if you could stand and know that all are there. That is the harmonious moment of life. That's the most harmonious person an alpha hippie could be. That's when all that frequency is at a sweet spot to be that feather and not be in disagreement with any of those things that I just said. So I'm a big believer in being present in specific moments and having those moment, those larger moments, sitting back and recognizing them and understanding when you're in one of those moments. And I feel, Angela, like I was just in one of those moments right there, what you just said during those two minutes, talking about the feather. And I don't want to disrupt those moments by asking another question. I feel like that is the perfect spot to to bring this uh, this discussion to a close because there's nothing else that I could say to top what you just said right there. That was absolute poetry. And I will I will certainly pull a clip of that and make sure that you have a copy because it just, um, that resonated with me on such a deep level. And I think that more than anything sums up that movie. It really, like, you, you should get in touch with, uh, with uh, the, um, with, Tom Hanks and, uh, you know, the, the whole crew there. And then they should hear what you just said, because I think that that's something that sums it up in such a beautiful way. I appreciate you. And you know, what's really enchanting about that. It's actually a call back to Alpha Hippie, the original question. And so it's actually a perfect loop. It's that feather harmony where you know that you could take care of business. You accept exactly what life is and so deeply in both that you don't need to let you could let go and not want to be in control my friend thank you so much for being on the building men podcast today can you please let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you to reach out to you to you and just to to go along on your journey in this uh in this renaissance that we're this mindful renaissance that we are entering right now Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me uh, on our social channels. I could be reached at I am Alpha Hippie on all that. The goodness. Uh, I am Alpha Hippie.com for, uh, for further questions and things of that nature and Alpha Hippie under any uh, good uh, podcast, YouTube uh, format to check us out as well. Thank you everyone for listening. I'll, put a, you know, some show notes in there, the ways that you can reach out to all of us. Go a step further than you thought you can go today. Thank you so much, Angelo Cisco, the Alpha Hippie. We'll see you next time on Building Men. <laughs>